scripture reading today is taken from Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Jeremiah 4, 1 through 7. This is the word of God. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay. For I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. The lion has come up from the thicket. And the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. That is the word of the Lord, and may he bless it to our hearts. What does God require of his repenting bride? Well, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's bride, you will remember, sinned greatly. She became addicted to the shiny things of the world. She didn't really hate God, but she was pulled away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And she became a serial, spiritual adulterer, or adulteress, an idolatress, if you will. And graciously, God called her to repent. But God didn't want a fake repentance from her. She had to speak it. She had to show it. It had to be real. It had to be known. It had to be visible. And she really had to do it quickly. And this is what you will hear about today. Our headings are three. The word of repentance. The work of repentance. And then the urgency of repentance. And our goals today are that you will challenge the church of Jesus Christ to repent in word and in deed and to do so urgently so the church can be spared from more severe suffering and resume the work of multiplying and building God's kingdom on earth. Let's then look at God's call for a word of repentance on his once apostatizing bride, the wandering eyes of the bride. She's being called back now and he's saying, speak. Well, the Lord promises bride that if she repented, he would never divorce her. 
and she would avoid captivity. But she had to change. So God's bride was called to repent and to repent on oath, not just a simple, I'm sorry. Swearing is an act of worship. It's a time when you use God's name. It is a time when you speak the truth. It's a time when you do it solemnly. And that's what God was expecting. She had to swear four things by her words to show repentance. First, she had to swear she would remove her abominations from before God's face. That's in verse 1. Second, she had to swear God lives in truth or in integrity. That God was the one in the right and she was the one in the wrong. That God lives in pure judgment and that God was indeed righteous. Third, she had to swear that it was God who would bring blessings to the nation. Not Baal, but if God's people lived a good life and did what they should, that the influence will spread to all the world around. Baals, those were detestable gods, abominations in God's sight. If his people would straighten up their life, the nations would come. That's what God had said before. That's what God said to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he said, I will bless those who bless you and will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The one who believes as you believe will be saved. And God repeated that promise many times to the other nations. He even said that before captivity. And he said that after captivity. This is sort of in the middle that we're looking at. But before, during the days of Isaiah, 150 years before Jerusalem fell. He said this, many people in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law there is a general term meaning the gospel. The Bible will go out and many will learn the word from Jerusalem. And then this time that Jeremiah is speaking. But after captivity, after their return in the time of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 8, 22 and 23 we hear these words. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. That was when Judah repented and returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt that temple. They restored worship. They were told, get ready for the spread of the kingdom around the world. If you live a good life, the nations will be blessed. And then the fourth thing she had to swear. She had to swear that she would give glory to God, not to the Baals. See, too much of our understanding of repentance has been skewed by popular sentiment or even by the English dictionary. 
If you look for dictionary, dictionary meaning, the first thing is to be sorry or to say you're sorry. But that's not exactly what that means. True understanding of repentance must be based on what the scripture says. Now, a certain minister had two sons. And the parents were teaching the sons to say you're sorry when you did something wrong. So the younger son hit his brother and he was told you have to say you're sorry. Okay. So then he hit his brother a second time and said I'm sorry. And then 12 times he hit his brother and then said sorry. Was he sorry? No. He said he was sorry. So sorry, uh, being sorry is much more than just saying it. Or just even an inward feeling. It's much more as you will see. So first God said, I want you to be sorry and swear that you are sorry. And swear with an understanding. Swear that the gods are detestable and there's only one true God of heaven and earth. So while you're required to confess first of all with your mouth, confess your sins with your mouth, it is way too easy to merely say you're sorry for your sins. You must make that solemn promise. That's why we have profession of faith. That's why when somebody becomes a Christian, they stand up and they, make, they take a vow before God, which is a private oath, to say that they truly believe in Jesus Christ and they renounce the old way of life and they commit themselves publicly in a solemn way, calling God to witness their change of life. Second lesson. You must stay close to God. And you say, how does that have to, what does that have to do with this passage? Well, when confessing your love for him, you are close to him, you're joined to him. And when you are close to your husband, you multiply. The good relations is translated in a family and working together for the spread of the family. You spend the rest of your life for the good of your children. And that's what God is saying. I want you to not just say you're sorry. I want you to say you're sorry in oath and then come close to me. Say you love me. And I will reassure you that I love you. And then there's a third lesson. What happens when you have that closeness is God used Israel to be a blessing to the nations. By her words, so must you be. And the question is, are you? Are you announcing to the nations? Are you telling them the gods they're serving are misleading them? And they have no hope without Yahweh, the true God of heaven and earth. Are you welcoming the stranger who visits the church on Sunday? Are you teaching others when you have the opportunity to teach them? Not when you have, you know, to put aside, the struggle is putting aside maybe the fun activities in our lives, but do you give priority to teaching others? Are you urging them to repent? You see, doing this proves repentance. It's not just saying you're sorry, but actually leading others to Christ so that they will repent. It shows you understand repentance and what pleases your husband, the bridegroom. This is what promotes the kingdom. 
So join with God. Not just stay close to him. But join with him and have children. But it's more than the word of repentance. The word of repentance under oath. The seriousness of it. That's very important. But God also wants works of repentance. From verse 3 we see that. He talks about breaking up your fallow ground. In order to show repentance, God's people had to break up fallow ground and not sow among thorns. Well, fallow ground was ground that was not planted. The grains that fell from the plants the year before were allowed to grow without plowing the ground. So the ground was hard. And God meant his bride's heart had become hard like fallow ground. And needed to be dug up. To dig up the soil of the heart so she could produce fruits. God wanted his seed to grow in her heart. All they had were scraps of ritual obedience. Just like the, the grains that grew up on fallow ground. It, wasn't, it was never plentiful. And that's why God used this term. Want you to start to dig up around. And where did that come from? Well in the New Testament the Lord Jesus used a couple of examples. About the seed that fell on hard ground. And then in Luke chapter 13 he speaks about the plant that was not producing in the vineyard. And what he had to do was to dig up around the soil and dung it. Or literally put manure on it. So that it would grow and produce fruit. See God wanted his seed to grow without the encumbrances of the world. And that's why he further said. Don't sow among thorns. Let it be good. What it should be and what it shouldn't be. Don't sow among thorns. Because the good plants are choked by the thorns. And that was their problem. That was the, those were the shiny things that took the bride's eye off of God. So she couldn't focus on the things that really mattered. Choked out by worldly cares. And the bride had to set aside her craving for wealth and success. And the other lusts of life. Things that crowded out the word. You know this is not strange. This is exactly what God said to Israel. Before the northern ten and a half tribes were taken away captive. A hundred plus years before this. He said in Hosea chapter 10, Sow for yourselves righteousness. That's verse 12. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You think these brothers that remain, this, these, uh, this one and a half tribe that remained in the south, would come to their senses and say, Look what happened to the northern ten and a half tribes. Look at how they were they didn't dig up their ground and plant good seed. They didn't put the manure there for it to grow. They didn't show real works of repentance. And then God took them away into Syria and spread them to the farthest parts of the world. How sad for them because they rejected God. And God said in another way. To get them to show those acts of real repentance. He said you need to circumcise your hearts. Not just your bodies. They were circumcised in the flesh. They were good to do the ritual things. They even offered sacrifices. Not with the heart. Not with the right heart. And sometimes not with the right sacrifices. But they did go through with the rituals. And God is saying 
circumcise your hearts. Every man knows circumcision took courage. And that's what God is implying here. You need to do something. It's an act. It's a hard thing to do. But it resulted. Like physical circumcision in clean hearts. Romans chapter 2 verse 28 and 29 say this. For he is a Jew who is one outwardly. Not, sorry. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit not in the letter. Whose praise is not from men but from God. That's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, 29, Deuteronomy as well. He said God wants a circumcision of the heart. Not just of the flesh. Their hearts have to be spiritually receptive to the word of God. That's what works to clean it out. That's what cuts off the uncleanness. James 1.21 says therefore lay aside all filthiness. An overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's digging up the ground. Getting rid. You know one of the things they did to the trees back then too was to smoke them. To kill all the worms on the leaves. It was uncomfortable for sure for the plant. But the plant survived and the fruits came. And same thing when you had to dig up the roots. It wasn't always good for the plant initially, but after it was fertilized, it became better. Or when you prune a plant, you have to clip off the tips so it will spread more and it will be better in the future. And remember, too, there were many non-Jews who were not circumcised in body, but they were circumcised in the heart. And that was really what was more important. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul stated how happy he was that he was circumcised. But the greater joy was what was done in the heart, the circumcision of the heart. So what did breaking up of the fallow ground? What does sowing among thorns, or not sowing among thorns, what does circumcising the heart look like in practice? We move from the theory to the practical. Well, the bride had to remove and destroy her, all her abominations, those bales in her life. Remember, the bales came as a result of them loving the shiny things. They became so preoccupied that they were working on the Sabbath day. Their lives became so busy with making money that it became easier to worship an idol who didn't talk back to them. Second, the bride had to raise her own children with all this awareness and dig around their hearts. That's Luke 13 now. Dig and fertilize it. And by the way, back then the fertilizing didn't come in a nice pack from Home Depot. Literally the word is to dung it. And October is a time for digging up the ground. And December is a time for digging up the ground. And February, when people are getting lazy and careless and depressed, that's the time to dig around the ground. That's the time to sow. What was that really speaking of, though? That was speaking of the work of the Lord. And that's what God wanted them to do. Dig around their hearts. Get rid of the filth, the vain attractions, and replace it with that which, is, which was good. 
And he gave this warning. He said, if the bride would not show repentance, he was going to burn her up. That's the language of the scriptures. Totally. He was going to burn her up. So what can we learn from the second point? I have three things to consider. First of all, living for Jesus does not mean freedom from work. It means freedom to work. Freedom from sin to work for him. You were made to work. You can't grow without work. You have to feed yourself God's word. You have to be willing to be corrected. You have to multiply. There are actions that are required. You can't simply be a Christian who exists. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't say, relax, you're on holidays, 365 and a quarter days of the year. No, he gave him work to do, and that's what every Christian who's been saved is expected to do. Particularly the work, digging around the hearts. Cleaning out the heart so we can live obediently and do the work God has called us to do. Unfortunately, the bride, secondly, became rebellious. And then they came back the first time. They repented. And by the way, Babylon did come and burn the city. They spent almost 70 years in Babylonian captivity. The Lord brought them out. They rebuilt the temple. And then they continued in the same lifestyle that at the time of Jesus, Jesus said, within a generation, there will be not one stone left on top of another. And what did the Romans do? They burned the city, shooting these fireballs over the walls and setting the city on fire, just like the Lord said he would do. That's seeing that the Lord will keep his promise or his threats. They were obsessed back then. The time of Jesus, Jerusalem was not a poor city. It was one of the thriving metropolis of the time where people were doing great business. Just like before Jerusalem fell in the days of Babylon. And this is the direction we are going today. Obsessed with money and worldly success. Fame, we've forgotten the task that God has given to us. That's the reality. That's why this sermon is so practical for today. How did they end up that way? Well, there's a lesson in that for us too. Don't rely on your baptism or your membership to save you. They're only outward things. God wants you to have your hearts baptized. Hearts that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Hearts that would live for Him. And then you show it. You shouldn't have to ask somebody. If you've known them for a while. Ask them if they're Christians. They'll be talking about Jesus. They'll be showing it in their lives. That's what God expects. And then there's a certain urgency that the Lord put on them. Because the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was coming. And that's our third point. The urgency for baptism. God called in Jeremiah to blow the trumpet. And call Judah to repent in verse 5. The warning meant that the Babylonian army was ready to pounce. Like that lion on Judah. And Judah had to get together in unison. Showing the corporate nature of God's church. And repent. 
And he says in verse 6, then God gave him a list of things to show that urgency. Do you understand the danger? God is saying to them. He says, if you do, I want you to do these three things. Set up the standard. This was a signal or a flag that would get the people for, together for an important reason. And they were to look towards Zion, the place where God was. Remember, that's what Daniel did when he was in Babylon. He was longing for that temple, and that's why he opened his window and prayed toward Jerusalem. It's not in a mystical way, but in a hopeful way that they would be able to go back there. And that's when the Lord just set up the standard, set up the flag, call the people together. And then he says, second, take refuge. Don't get away from danger and take Just simply take the warning of God. You see the flag. Go to where God's people was. Meet with God's people and with God. And then he says, do not delay. Destruction was at the door. Unfortunately for the Jews, they did not show urgency and did not do these things. And look what happened. Back in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 4, the Bible says, Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night. That's the Jews at this time. By way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were still encamped around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain. Here they are running away because they did not do what God said. They did not set up the standard to come together. They did not take refuge to encourage each other and listen to God. And they did not do it quickly. They just thought, a little bit more money, a little bit more joy, a little bit more worldly success. And then the Babylonians came. That's that verse 7 that is so interesting. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the nations is on the way. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian lion, and that was a symbol of Babylon, was the lion. He managed to get out of the hole he was in. Literally to break out of the gates. Where God had limited him. God was saying, I'm the one who controls the world. And I am limiting him. But you have to get your, your sight right. He was ready to make Judah desolate. He would destroy the land, the people, and the king. And look at what happened. 2 Kings 24 verse 1. And in his days Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came up. And Jehoiakim became the vassal, his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. That's Nebuchadnezzar. But that was the end of Judah as we know it. For 70 years they suffered. They didn't take the warning. Oh they might have tokenly said we are sorry. But they never took it on oath. And then they never showed it in their lives. They didn't even care about doing anything quickly. There are three lessons here. First of all, live and let live is not a Christian sentiment. That's a pagan principle. If you let people live in the state they are in, when they are apart from God, it is sentencing them to death warned them today before they are wounded by God. 
urgently call them to repent. Dig around their hearts and fertilize them with the gospel. And this may mean your husband or your wife. This may mean your children. You know, your children could be like that tree in the garden or in the vineyard. But it's not productive. And the Lord is pleading with the Father saying, let me dig around the roots. That's how you need to pray. Lord, help me to dig around the roots. Help me to spread the message of Jesus Christ. Help me to speak about the cross to my children that they will hear that. That I don't say, well, they've done profession of faith, it's okay. Or they're in catechism class, that's okay. That's the task God has given to every parent. Elders have their jobs for sure. But the first responsibility is for you to dig around those roots. And if you see your husband isn't living a godly life, take the time to dig around the roots. You see, repentance and restoration starts with one. It's the individual. When the lives are changed and the church is changed and the nation is changed. But don't expect the government to change things. These wicked men and women who rule us have no shame. They're advocating for wickedness. Just heard one politician say this past week. That we need abortions because abortions really is necessary because children are enslaving people to work. And therefore they should have the right to abort and murder their babies. That's the way they think. You know differently. You've got work to do to dig around the roots of your children and your spouses and your friends. And maybe your Oma or Opa, your grandparents, if they're not living a good life, it's okay to talk to them about that children. Because you want them to grow. You want them to produce. You want them to bear fruit in their lives. And you need to gather together to worship. And it's been an issue in the last few years where many churches have closed their gathering together and have gone purely online. Can you imagine what that does? Can you imagine them singing to each other in, uh, while they're sitting on their couches, who knows where? How can you do that? The Bible says you need to sing, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know how you have the Lord's Supper to show the unity? How do you do that when you're in different places? And yet that's what the church has resorted to. How do you encourage each other face to face? Even when the Apostle Paul would send a letter, he would say, hug them, kiss them for me. Because there's a closeness that's there. And that's why he's saying, come together. That's where you hear the word of repentance. That's when change will ultimately come. And then those who are careless about how they live are in mortal danger. And God is angrier with you than with those who know nothing about him. He expects better from you because you are his covenant child and you know that word. And this is why I believe that God is angrier with his church now than with the world. The world is following their father, the devil, because they don't know any better. But what happens when the church is lethargic? It's not doing the work God has called her to do. He's, she's not close to him, so she can't produce. 
fact that the church is growing. It's not the coldness of the world. God can save any soul. That you, the church in general is not close to him. So many churches are focusing. You turn on the radio and listen. It's always health and wealth. How to get healthy and what God means to you. And how you're close to him in a personal way. But not in a true covenantal way. Some things to think about. Let's conclude. God wanted his bride to repent. Under oath. Seriously. Think about what she's supposed to do. And he wanted her to repent by real evident work. And he wanted her to do so urgently. When the first two were gone. The third one didn't matter anymore did it? But beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins every day and every week. Dig around your own heart. Fertilize it. Fertilize it with the word of God. The more you learn of the love of God, the more you will feel guilty when you stray. The more you learn about the justice of God, it'll make you stay closer to him. The more you learn about the holiness of God, it'll make you say, I can't live that way. I can't talk that way. I can't think that way. That's how you fertilize your mind. You know, repentance in the literal sense, is a change of mind. But that's just the, how you break the word up. Metanoia. Real repentance is to hate your sins, is to forsake your sins, and is to turn around and live obediently before the Lord. And let that repentance be seen in your life. If you were known as a person who lied, stop lying. If you were one who treated worship as unimportant, make it important. If stealing was common, let it become uncommon. If you frivolously use God's name, use it in a worshipful way, with respect. If you didn't take time in the word of God, do so. If you didn't pray as you should, spend time, set aside time. Dig around the hearts of your children too. Don't just read the Bible. Explain the Bible to them. Let them live as Christians. Put some of that gospel around their roots every day. Talk bluntly to them. Talk about the cross. And if they don't trust in Jesus Christ and receive what he's offered to them, they will go to hell forever. Warn them not to trust in the baptism for salvation. And then call on the church in North America to pray. Not just look at yourself and your family. It must expand more. Look at the church. Call her to pray and to show her sorrow for her sins. God can't be pleased with her now. Dig around the roots. And you know what? It can be uncomfortable when you challenge people about the way they're living and what they believe. And the carelessness of their lives. You might lose some friends. But we're not in this world to be liked. Politeness is not our goal. Honoring God is. Now we do so with love. But it's love that will make you dig around the roots. Because you want that tree to produce. Be ready to lose some friends. So that you can honor God. If you do this. Start with yourself then your own family and then the church. It will set the tone for revival. It will set the ground for even more blessings down the road. We think that we need to focus on material wealth. 
And so we sacrifice spiritual things. But if we get our spiritual things right, there's nothing that's stopping God from blessing us with the material things as well. But that's a result of living close to God. And finally, here's what the scripture says. Living apart from God is death. And if you want to come close to God for life, you must ask him to count Jesus' work on the cross as yours. Then and only then will you have life.